Hello and welcome back to the Dual Access Podcast. Today, I have a truly extraordinary guest who started his first tech company at the tender age of 10, sold it by 17, and hasn't slowed down since. He's a serial entrepreneur, a gaming aficionado, and a CEO who knows how to turn ideas into a thriving business. This is an episode you absolutely don't want to miss. It's my pleasure to welcome Graham Barlow. Thank you very much, Andy. Excited to be here. Great. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Let's go back to the very beginning. Take us back to your early days and tell me a bit about more of this first tech company you started at age 10 and what drove you to do something at such a young age? <laughs> Nothing good. Um, <laughs> Video games? No, maybe? like it's it's funny looking back on it. That was kind of my my first kind of venture into the world of entrepreneurship and mm -hmm. startups. But at the time, I had no idea what the word entrepreneurship was. I'd never heard of a startup. Was primarily focused on I love playing video games and I want to come up with an excuse to play more video games and mm. justify playing way too many video games to <laughs> parents and family. And a lot of it came from just trying to show that there was some value in online gaming at the time and that there was something more to it than just wasting time on the internet. Um, and that kind of got us started and we got got kicked off by selling early, early, early items in a number of online games on eBay and kind of evolved from there when we realized that it kind of sucked to spend all of your time playing games and then sell off the things you got and then have to start all over again. So mm -hmm that's where it kind of became a bit more of a tech company when we started building really basic bots and scripts to automate the gameplay and then realized dealing with eBay when you're not legally old enough to be on eBay is kind of a pain. So started selling details, to details. kind of other third parties and yeah, uh, scaled that up over the course of about six years. So wow, that was kind of venture one. <laughs> How long did it take your parents to find out that you were selling stuff on eBay? Uh, uh, so they knew very early on. I have a on. feeling that you kind of snuck it for a little while. <laughs> uh, they knew very early on in the context of, I swear there's value in what I'm doing. See, look, but it was very much not a huge conversation at the dinner table or throughout the day because yeah. a lot of, it also led to a lot of awkward questions of like, my parents were both very active in the online world and very active on eBay and early on early days for all of that stuff. And so questions would come up like, you don't have a credit card. How do you have PayPal? You don't have <laughs> the ability to do any of this stuff. What are you doing? Um, and I mean, we were kind of just figuring it out at the time, but um, yeah, they were, they were a little bit aware, but not, not super involved. And for the most part, we kept everything, kind of online and on PayPal and in the internet world, because we really didn't know how to get money off of the internet into Canadian <laughs> bank accounts. So and like, still just most people hadn't account. really figured that out at the time anyway. So <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of our own little online ecosystem. Uh, that, that's really cool. And then uh, how, what, what stage did it get to before you decided to sell it? And what did you actually sell? I, I guess you sold the company, but what does that oh, actually so, mean? So not really. Like, and okay. this is where it's it's kind of a weird introduction into entrepreneurship because it was okay. the most informal company ever in that I did it with a whole bunch of friends that I played online with, none of whom I knew in real life. Um, to this day, only one or two of them I've ever met in person. 
and there was no corporation. There was no articles or board or anything like that. We kind of had a collective that we worked together to build this thing. And we managed all of the accounts across all the different games. Anytime someone figured out there was an economy in a game, we would kind of add that game to the list of things we tried to break. I mean, we ran bots of Diablo 2, bots in World of Warcraft. We ran flash exploits on Neopets. Like it was kind of whatever has a currency and a economy we were we were playing with. And so when we ended up kind of selling the company, we were essentially selling our currency inventory and the accounts and just selling it to another wholesaler. And we did it all in kind of one transaction and then kind of split up the proceeds of that and moved on. (laughs) That's really cool. So what, um, what'd you learn from that experience? I'm sure it's a lot. So many things. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's so much opportunity. Like, I think one of the big things I learned coming away from it is there isn't always a playbook on how to do something. And a lot of what we did, we kind of just thought it was cool. It was something we were passionate about. So we just tried it and usually screwed it up, but then kind of found a way. Um, Looking back, I've learned a lot about how to build more kind of compliant companies and uh we were very much operating the like internet gray slash black market of currency world and i think it was long before anybody knew we were doing anything that wasn't super on the rules weren't very well defined then (laughs) yeah yeah everyone was kind of figuring it out and so i've learned a lot more about how to better structure companies and how to better structure teams like i think we got unbelievably lucky that there was never any significant disagreements within our group that there was Mm. never any weirdness on that front um when we finally got called out on kind of breaking a whole bunch of laws or rules by blizzard and told to shut down we shut down and kind of that's that was the um precursor to us walking away from it and yeah the other thing that i think has been more relevant of a lesson lately is that we built a remote company in 2000 and you didn't even know the other people right (laughs) um anyone and everyone i talk to today that's like oh i don't know about remote i don't know if you can do it it's like we did this 20 years ago yeah and you were 10 a fraction of the tools that are available today yeah like with the technology that exists today and the ecosystem that we're in um there's no excuse for not being able to build virtual like there's just none um, it can absolutely be done. And I mean, fortunately, we're we're proving that every day with the companies we're building. But to me, that's one thing I look back at it and laugh a little bit. I also laugh when everyone got super excited about digital currencies and kind of crypto and this whole idea that like things on the internet can be worse. I was like, this has literally been like two and a half decades that people have been paying for <laughs> things on the internet. Welcome to the conversation. I'm glad you're I'm glad you're here. <laughs> oh, that's that's funny. And and over the past 24 years, you've co-founded five other companies, I think it is, right? Um how do you I believe so, you yeah. Decide, <laughs> yeah. How do you decide um uh, what sectors or ideas to explore? Yeah. Um I would love to say it's super strategic. A lot of it has been the right opportunities with the right people. Um okay. I got into the gaming industry so my my second second company rocket owl i took a fairly winding path too because i moved when i was younger i moved from toronto 
or Pickering to Ottawa to go to school. Really did not enjoy university, ended up dropping out. Tried to start a marketing consulting company. That didn't do anything crazy. Um, ended up meeting up with a whole bunch of guys that were super involved in the green energy kind of clean tech space, specifically mm-hmm. around solar. We started and put about a month into a solar financing company and then realized that a lot of the solar companies we were dealing with were having this huge issue with like awareness and reach. And at the same time, Zynga and Farmville were kind of blowing up on Facebook. And I think at one of the meetings for the solar financing discussion, somebody was like, has anyone played any games? Does anyone know anything about like the gaming world? Cause I think we could reach a lot of people. And I was like, uh, I come from that world. What would you like to know? <laughs> um, and so like through the course of that conversation, I was like, okay, well, what if, what if we built a really high quality, really cool game on Facebook that had an environmental theme? We could partner with organizations all over mm-hmm. the world and promote some cool stuff and take advantage of a platform that's kind of blowing up for social reach in yeah. Facebook gaming. So that was kind of the inception of Rocket Owl. And we built that over a million users and um, worked with nonprofits and kind of environmental organizations all over the world to do some really, really cool stuff. Um, After doing that for a number of years and really seeing the best and worst of the games industry side of incredible Mm -hmm. scale, incredible reach, extremely challenging on the monetization side. I learned a lot about fundraising. Like we raised almost two and a half million from angels and venture went down the whole path of having a big um, kind of series a round signed and locked in place and then fell through at the last minute. Um, So we ended up selling the technology from that company. And as part of that deal, I kind of found myself overseeing a sales and marketing accelerator and early stage venture fund where we were investing in SaaS companies. Um, During the course of that, saw an incredible company that we ended up co-founding called ProPet Software that was uh, business management tools for the pet industry. Got into that because... Pretty niche. <laughs> I say, I loved it. I loved it so much and I'm still super excited about that company because we were living through it in that um, my business partner at the time had a huge, large breed rescue and um, dog kennel and they were just drowning trying to manage it with no tools and trying to explain to QuickBooks mm that they had customers that were dogs and customers that were humans and some of their customers were owned by their, their humans um, was a mess. And so we saw the potential in the industry and that was one. Oh, that was one where, can you still see me? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You never dropped out. Odd. Uh, all right. I'm, um, upgraded mac os earlier today and apparently it goes to sleep if i'm just talking uh, <laughs> no it did, uh, oh well i could still hear you the whole time okay all good yeah uh, so that one that one was really interesting in that we saw the scope and the scale of the pet industry but nobody was really building modern software tools for it and so saw an opportunity to build tools that kind of catered to the unique needs of that space mm-hmm. i got involved uh, Cash invested in it, and I got involved as a co-founder when we started it. Um, and then a couple of years into that, got approached by Matt and Vicky, who are the original founders of Iversoft. They were launching a hardware engineering company. 
Um, we ended up passing on the investment there, but they asked if I would come on as CEO for that organization and help them raise money. Um, I ended up coming on and as part of that deal said, look, we'll do the hardware thing, but every advisor I've talked to in my entire world said, don't do hardware. It's awful. Um, four months later, I agreed with them and <laughs> we stopped in the engineering thing and decided to focus on the, on building out the software side of the business with Iversoft. And that was uh, eight years ago, come January this year, and we've grown from a team of seven to over 50 and having a lot of fun. Yeah. How often do you get the itch then to start something new? <laughs> Every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, it's it's something that I, I like to stay involved through as an advisor and okay. recognize that I am not great at focusing on too many things at once. And so I can do a really good job at kind of advising and coaching uh, companies that are scaling up. I have a lot of experience at this point, mm -hmm. um, fundraising through multiple organizations, investing both through a fund and as an angel and am able to provide a lot of value as kind of advisor coach, um, less good at multi founder running multiple things. So I know, I know we met through kind of Dan Martell's group and he is very good at reinforcing the philosophy of like, do one thing and do it so ridiculously well that it provides for everything else you want to do rather than doing yeah. like 10 streams of everything and dividing yourself. And I, I very much prescribe to that. I will, I will coach and advise on multiple fronts, but my, my primary focus is usually the, the one thing I'm building at the time. Okay. I want to go back to something you said earlier. Um, so you didn't finish university then, is that right? No, I I, I right. confidently finished a semester and a half <laughs> and then walked away. Ironically, oh, though, every school I've ever like shown up to. So like I have the school I, I registered for an undergraduate in. And I also there's another university in Ottawa that I have given some talks at. Both of them put pieces out about me in their alumni paper. And I chuckle every time that comes out. I'm like. I don't know that I crossed that box, but if you want to send me a degree, I'll take it. Like, but, that's funny. Yeah, no. So, yeah, and it, because I've become um, since since I've been in the role I'm in now for the last eight and a half years, I've become much um, uh, or much more skeptical about university degrees and and the importance of them. And you know, your your proof of that. I got a question for you about how you hire people. Then, um, yeah. do you? consider where people went to school at all no we have no we have no educational requirement for any job in iversoft and we moved away from those requirements a number of years ago and moved mm -hmm. towards applied testing and so we have a fairly rigorous interview process that requires um some live testing some kind of theoretical conversation but for any role in the company whether it's sales marketing development whatever yeah um there's practical things we can get people to do that show what they're capable of and have a really kind of robust people development philosophy and internal system for helping people level up. And it's been kind of incredible, the talent it's given us access to that we might have otherwise mm -hmm. missed if it was such a hard line on you need to have this degree. I mean, the, the reality is, and I, I live this philosophy, is you can learn anything on the planet from some of the best people on the planet online today 
regardless of your industry. I think there's probably, there's certain exceptions for like professional designations, whether it's like doctors or whatever. But for most jobs, you can learn more cutting edge information online than you can from any school anywhere. And I think the people that demonstrate strong proficiency at that ability, at the ability to go find that information, adapt, consume, and kind of keep learning, I'll take that every day over a degree from a fancy school. Yeah. Ultimately, you're looking for, are they a good fit, like culturally yeah. at the company? And can they do the job? Yeah. That's about it, right? Are they going to be pushed the rest of the team? All those, you know, all those other things that come with it. Because, you know, I, I've got, I get into discussions with, with, uh, with people all the time about this. And it's, you know, once they start, do you ever look at where they went to school again? And if no. you don't, then why do you look in the first place? You know, and it, uh, I think yeah. it's, it must just be because that's how people have always done it. You know, that kind of, uh, it's laziness, I think, but, um, you know, but, I, but I then think you're also becoming a box ticker, right? Yeah. I don't want people that just tick boxes. I want people that are slightly outside of those boxes and that come with yeah. different ideas. Cause you know, like, um, I watch suits, for example, I know it's a, it's fictitious, <laughs> but they yep. only hire from Harvard. So yep. you get the same people all the time. It doesn't help, you know, give you a rounded organization or anything where you can't run into that problem if you don't even think about degrees, right? Yeah, well, and, and like that's an interesting example in that I think there's probably a handful of schools on the planet that come with a very particular pedigree and potentially network that comes with attending that can be valuable. But in terms of just raw skill and output, I don't. I don't think it makes sense. What what I'm I'd be curious to see because you've got exposure in kind of a ton of markets all over the world. Do you see different philosophies around education changing in different areas? Is it pretty consistent? Nope. So it's all Still. the way it's always always the way it's been. I think part of that's because there's no incentive for the teachers to learn anything new. A lot of them are tenured. Um, so what's yeah. in it for them? Nothing. Um, they can't be bothered. Um, yeah. they don't know it as well. They didn't study it. So they're probably intimidated by it, but I think it's short-sighted to not at least supplement their teaching. You know, I think students would respect them if they said, you know, I, I don't know all of this, but here's some resources that I've collated that I know are great. And, yeah. you know, if, you know, we can use these to do X, Y, Z in the next course or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And it'll show a bit of humbleness because then you become more of, you know, uh, more of a, a coach to the people in the class, not necessarily a teacher, right? Teaching isn't just lecturing. There's a lot more to it. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think we've seen that through the evolution. And I mean, maybe this was true 30 years ago, but like today, the rate of change in industry and the rate of new information coming in is so fast. I don't, I fundamentally don't understand how, traditional curriculum and teaching methodologies keep up and stay relevant. Like I, yeah. I remember I had a conversation with a college a few years ago that were looking to create a digital marketing program um, with the caveat that the con content needed to be written two years before it would be taught to the class because it needed to go through this, all these stages of review. Right. And it was like, I, our teams retrain on kind of a monthly basis and roll philosophy on how we do digital every six months. 
how on earth are you going to create an entire course for people to spend like years of their lives on two years in advance and then try and roll it out and act like this is going to prepare them for anything. Like it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but it's still such a dominant part of the conversation. It's, it's frustrating. I've, I've definitely had lots of interesting conversations. I'm as a, as a company, I'm happy if the whole world is still screening on educational requirements, it makes it really easy for us to find yeah. incredible talent that doesn't check those boxes. <laughs> but I think you'll see more organizations uh, adapt over time. I hope. Yeah, we, we don't look at any part of the CV um, for, for the application. We, we tell people they can send it, but we put a note in there that says, you can send it, but you're wasting your time. You know, we're not going to look at it. Yeah. Um, my, it reminds me that my, my youngest son, he learned <clears throat> to play guitar and to draw and paint and things by YouTube. And then as soon as he went into formal education, he stopped doing it because he didn't enjoy it anymore. Yeah. Because he was, YouTube allowed him to learn, to find you know, teachers that or instructors that spoke to him, right. That, that he liked their style and, and, uh, and, you know, just it, once they get into that, that mode of, of learning, they don't want to stop. And then as soon as they hit traditional school, that's the end of it. Right? And, it's, well, and it's, I, it's really a shame. I laugh a little bit at the conversation I've had sometimes in the past of like, Oh, but like if you're learning from YouTube or if you're learning from one of these online courses, it's like, it's one to many, like you need that like personal relationship. You need that stuff. I'm like, I was in a psych one one class that had 900 students in it. Yeah. What one-on-one -on -one are you talking about? Like, yes, the, you break them up into groups, but you have no different level of access in most university classes than you would in an online setting. The big difference is in the online setting, you've got an entire audience of motivated people in the comments that are building a community that are supporting each other, that are answering questions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these creators that are creating amazing ecosystems. So like there's so much that you can learn. And I think it's interesting to see how the internet kind of reacts and just creates the solution and creates the resources that people actually want and actually use. Um, well, institutions kind of struggle to figure out what their role is. Yeah. And you're seeing lots of reports now of where universities are particularly since COVID where they're, they're struggling financially because they can't get students to enroll because I think students are realizing, I don't want to spend four <laughs> years of my life doing this or three years, whatever it might be. It's just a complete waste of time. And, you know, oh, I've, and I've they written can't before. Afford it. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. Right? The, the entire yeah. value prop of go put yourself in debt forever. Yeah. To it, learn from what is no longer the best place to learn, I think is, is getting called into question. I think a lot of us came up through a generation where it was like, like I was so stressed dropping out. Mm -hmm. There's no world where I should have gone to university to begin with. Right. And, I wish there'd been a system that kind of looked at the programs that applied to and gone, yeah, try again. Like, because yeah. I literally, I applied to law, I applied to history, I applied to political science, business, and psych at like five different schools. And I was like, I have no idea. I, I literally am doing this yeah, because somebody said you should have a degree. That's how you become an adult. Yeah, yeah. And I was I mean, like, here no. in the UK, they, they ask the kids to specialize when they're, Let's see, when they turned 14, I believe. Oh my God. 
They ask yeah. kids to, they start trimming down the kind of general curriculum. Like in the US, you, you get your kind of broad curriculum throughout high school. Um, okay. Where here in the UK, you're, you specialize as soon as you get to like, I think it's eighth grade or seventh grade. Wow. It's absolutely ridiculous. And then they put kids through, you know, ninth and 10th grades. There's so much stress on the kids for these standardized tests. And the tests wow. mean absolutely nothing other than to the funding the school gets. Right. And the great and the, you know, the ranking that the school gets, that's all they care about. Administrators are incentivized that way. The yeah. teachers hate what they do because they don't really get to teach, you know, and it's uh, and, you know, it's probably why you're seeing it's such a teacher shortage now, too. You know, they 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 don't get to teach. Yeah. So, yeah. That's crazy. I had no yeah. idea it started that young there. That's, yeah, it's that's it's awful. Bad. Yeah, it's 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 really <laughs> awful. And and it doesn't matter because as soon as they go to university, they can change their mind. So, yeah, you know. most do. Yeah. Or they graduate with a degree they don't want. Several times. Right? I, yeah, like, I think that's. It's such a frustrating thing to see is like I meet with, I meet a lot of young kind of aspiring entrepreneurs that are getting to their third or fourth year of university and just discovering that entrepreneurship or startups are an option for them and yeah are starting to like look at what's what's out there and to me it's crazy that like it's not until that stage in their lives that anyone's even telling them they could do something different and when they realize they don't need a degree if they work for themselves or if they want to build a company. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, uh, it's changing. It's changing yeah. quickly. Yeah. I think it's changing for the better. You're going to get more innovation yes. and, uh, lot, lots, lots more ideas. Um, I want to go oh, yeah. into kind of your, your leadership skills. You, you've been an executive and kind of, um, leadership roles for, for a very long time. Um, so th throughout these experiences, how has your leadership style evolved? <laughs> has it? <laughs> uh, it absolutely has. Okay, good. Um, empathy, maturity, and humility, I think would be the themes of the last 20 plus years. Um, it's funny. I've always, I've always kind of found myself in leadership-esque positions for as long as I can remember. Um, even early days in the gaming world, I was never necessarily one of the best players or mm -hmm. the most competitive, but I was very good at collecting everyone we needed for the team and getting people organized and kind of pointed in the right direction. Your project manager. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Although our entire PM team would scream if they heard me say that because <laughs> I am the antithesis of project management. I'm like, all right, we, we have all the pieces. We're going that way. We'll be there in six months, I think. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I'll be back in six months. See you then. Um, but it's it's kind of collect, collect the pieces and, and make sure everyone has what they need. And then, for the most part, get out of the way. And I think what's evolved for me the most is, <clears throat> I think, Growing up, I saw leadership as this kind of Steve Jobs model of you need to be ruthless, you need to be kind of commanding, and you can't show any degree of vulnerability. You can't pretend mm -hmm. like you don't have the answer. When I did my first or second company with Rocket Owl, I started out very much on the philosophy of like, I have to have all the answers. And if I don't, people are going to lose confidence immediately. And learned kind of through that journey that a lot of the confidence came from being willing to admit what I didn't know, being willing to seek out help. And that was a big shift for me. And since then, I've spent a lot of my time 
building out and cultivating as broad a network as I possibly can of people who know infinitely more than I do that I can reach out to when I'm trying to figure something out or when we're faced with something. And that becomes kind of a recurring task in leadership, in my opinion, of like every time our companies reach another level or reach another milestone, my job is to go find a whole new mentor network group or peer group that have done the next level up set and have the next round of kind of insights and answers and be able to bring value from my own experiences to that for, for everyone that I'm connecting with. And so that I think has evolved a lot. I definitely went into Rocket Owl and the experience there with the philosophy that I am um, unbeatable and cannot possibly lose at anything I do. Um, seeing funding fall apart, seeing monetization not come through the way we wanted it. Um, like during the course of Rocket Owl, we scaled that team up to about 25 and then scaled it back down to four. That checks your ego pretty quickly. And I actually spent a little bit of time after, after Rocket Owl trying to kind of rebuild my sense of self and worth because there was so much I took away from that that I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm a disaster. Like this is, this is horrible. And fortunately I've been able to kind of get to a place where it's like, no, I, le I learned an unbelievable amount during that time. And those lessons stay with you because they're painful. Right. And I look back at that and I'm like that, that was tuition. You pay that with kind of blood, sweat and tears. And like, those are the things that you learn. And then, the other one that's been probably most prevalent in the last few years is continuing to challenge beliefs. Uh, and I think I touched on this a little bit when we, we chatted. I've definitely referenced our remote policy recently in this conversation. But like prior to the pandemic, <clears throat> Iversoft was a team of, say, 20, 25 people. And we had a very generous remote work policy where with manager approval, with a written form, you could book one day a month where you could work remotely. We thought with that was the, the extent. Yeah. I say with, with all the paperwork and everything kind of in place. And like, as long as it didn't interfere with anything else, that was kind of our philosophy on remote work. We had a standard nine to five business schedule. And those were just kind of the untouchable things. It's like, no, everyone has to be in the office. Everyone works these hours. And, this is how we run. And since then, we've obviously moved fully remote. We got rid of 12,500 square feet of office space. We moved to a compressed four-day work week. We moved to all kinds of flexibility. Mm. And across the board, productivity has gone up. Output has gone up. Company has grown. If you'd asked me three years ago if any of that was possible, I would have said, absolutely not. You're crazy. And so that was a good reminder to continue to challenge the things that you think are immutable and something that we try and do with our leadership team now on a regular basis is take a bit of self-reflective look of like what are the operating rules that we are adhering to right now that we think are untouchable that maybe they could change maybe there is a better way and it really helped introduce a culture of experimentation and um, kind of piloting things and how we how we do everything because there is there is nothing that can't be changed everything is kind of a construct we've created and therefore there might be a better way sometimes there isn't sometimes you try something and go yeah no that was that was a bad idea back to the way it was um other times it's it unlocks kind of huge growth and success so so if if you think back then if 
COVID hadn't happened, yeah. Iversoft would still have their generous, um, you know, remote work policy. <laughs> we might how be up to two days. Yeah. How do you think the the company would be different then? Uh, world's different. Like I think I so much of our growth over the last number of years has come from international clients, which we really didn't have prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of our team at this point lives outside of the Ottawa area. Um, heading into it, everyone lived in Ottawa. We were very focused on kind of the presence of the office and what that was, and everyone lived within commuting distance. So I think it, I don't think we'd be nearly where we are today in terms of growth and size. And I think it would have really made it a lot more challenging to do everything like it's i just look back and i can't even imagine what that world kind of looks like compared to what we've now mm -hmm. seen and it, because it's been a whole chain of events like we got access to stronger talent that got us access to yeah. more advanced contracts that got us, yeah as a success on more advanced contracts got us more interesting talent because we're working on cooler things and it, yeah. it like it kind Snowball. of snowballs yeah and yeah without that we'd still be limited to recruiting within radius of the office we'd still be largely doing deals kind of likely within canada and yeah it's a it's a very very different world which is crazy to me because i had experience doing virtual before and kind of bought into and got sold on the philosophy that you can't build culture you can't build companies you can't build that sense of unified direction unless everyone's in a building and I let myself fall into that trap. And so now I'm very cognizant as a leader of just don't fall into that trap again. Don't mm -hmm. let yourself get, get swept up in that. I mean, it's yeah. similar to the education conversation for a lot of companies, right? Of like generationally, I think there's a, there's a philosophy like without a degree, you can't be successful without a degree. You're not talented. And it's like, there are some of our most talented devs and people on our team have, very non-traditional education paths and that's mm -hmm. fine I, like a lot of them came from countries they couldn't afford to get access to it and it's like the talent's there and they they're self-taught but they don't have the stamp of a canadian school or an american school or a british school right. for yeah i, I accomplished this it doesn't mm. matter Show it's interesting because you, you you've come full circle back to your first business when you were 10 <laughs> right you yeah. were you were doing remote work before anybody else did but it sounds like you fell into the trap without realizing it that you have to be more of a traditional company and COVID forced you to rethink that. And now yeah. you're back to probably, I, I bet when you were, you know, started that first company when you were 10, it was probably so much fun. Oh, and yeah. well, is it, it wasn't fun? a company. <laughs> yeah. Is it more fun now because you are remote and you have more freedom and you know, yeah. you've opened up this whole world. Absolutely. I like, I absolutely think that. And I know, I know there will be people that probably see this and say, Oh, I, I hate remote. I need, I need the social interaction of office. And I think I'm very fortunate that I'm in a role that I get to travel when I want to, to meet with clients, to go to events, to do that mm -hmm. stuff and even do meetups with our team. But I have a very young daughter. She's 18 months being able to be at home to yeah. see her in the morning, to see her at the end of the day, and be a major part of her life while still being able to do incredible stuff at work, do calls like this. Um, 
I wouldn't change it for the world. And it's, it's been so much fun and it's been so much fun finding other organizations that have similar philosophies and being able to jump into projects together with them. Yeah. What advice would you give to any uh, young entrepreneurs or people wanting to start their own businesses? Yeah. Uh, good question. I think the big one is just start. Like I think a lot of people. But that's spend... easier said than done. Fair, fair. Um, a Although lot of that's spend the time, I give everybody as well, but yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot of people spend time preparing to be entrepreneurs or preparing mm -hmm. to launch a company or getting themselves ready to get a customer. And I've given this advice a lot to uh, people recently, and that is, if you're at the stage where you have some idea of what you want to do, and you generally you you know you kind of want to have a business, go get a customer. Stop planning. Stop worrying about your logo or what your business card looks like. Go talk to potential customers and get a customer. And then start solving the problems that you run into after you have a customer. And then get another customer and see what problems that introduces. Like I've talked to people that want to launch services businesses and they're spending forever getting their branding right, getting their look and feel right. It's like you don't have it. Nobody cares about your brand when you have right. no clients and no portfolio. It does yeah. not matter. Go find one person that believes in what you do, get them as a customer, start building from there, and it will come over time. Like we've definitely seen that evolution with Ibersoft is like the types of deals we had access to four years ago are different than the deals we had today. And a lot of that just comes from shipping on larger and larger projects and delivering mm -hmm. and getting testimonials and getting the experience and getting the credibility it's not, sorry, marketing. Um, it's not because our logo looks different or we're using a better font or we made a cooler landing page. Like it's, it's because of the credibility. It's because of what we've done. If you're looking at doing the kind of raise funding startup route, again, go talk to some potential customers. The number of people that I talk to that are raising money for a business but have never really spoken to the people they think they're solving problems for is frustrating. <laughs> like so crazy. And people are so reticent to just go have conversations. It's so much more interesting to see a pitch from somebody that says, Hey, I'm solving this problem for this industry, for businesses like these. Here are the 10 companies that I've talked to that have this pain point that have signed up for updates of when I'm shipping this. And here's the two that have signed on that, if I launch at this pricing and it does these things, they'll sign a contract with me. Like right. that is way more interesting than like, Oh, I've looked at this industry. I think this is a problem. I want to raise money to build a solution. And it's like, mm. yeah, it's, it's just start. Mm. <laughs> I, I realize I it's tough advice, but like, yeah, I, I interviewed Yusef uh, Botros from our, uh, okay. From from our Dan Martell's uh, group, from our elite coaching group. And he said the exact same thing last week. He, when he decided to go out on his own, he never even bothered with the website, didn't think about a yoga, uh, a logo. I don't even know if he had a company name. He just went out and found a couple of customers. And then he worried yep. about all that stuff later. But it's yep. so easy to get caught up in that process of, of over planning. Um, yep. uh, James Clear calls it in motion versus action. Right. So you're you're when you're in motion, you're actually not really doing anything, but you're trying to convince yourself that you are. But action is 
well, let's go get that customer, right? Not let's worry yeah. about what the website looks like because nobody well, really cares about your website. I'll say the reality is, especially early on when you're starting out, nobody's buying you because of your brand. They're buying you because yeah. of you. They're buying you because they trust you and the person you're showing up as and mm -hmm. your credibility. If it's a brand new company, it doesn't matter what your logo or name is. You haven't done anything. The company hasn't done anything. So right. the vetting is going to come down to what are you offering and who are you? And so, yeah, yeah step one is just get yourself out there and go talk to some people. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with like, and I'm sure you've seen this on the technology side, but like people like to over-engineer software all the time mm -hmm. trying to solve for or design for a thousand edge cases when it's like just ship an mvp right get it in your customers hands and they will tell you what they need as extra features or what's missing or but the, the amount of time and energy we see and try and push back on at iversoft with people just overdoing feature sets before ever having customers in the solution is crazy and i know mm. like we've walked away from some projects and we just said like look you don't have any customers yet you're building too much start smaller yeah and get real feedback because we don't want to go 12 months down in development and then be like oh crap yeah half of what we built doesn't matter to your customer base because they're not going to use it yeah we wish we'd built these other things that everyone's now complaining about that they they need so yeah, I know. I know just start isn't the easiest advice, but like literally it is in that vein of just start talking to yeah. people, just start, start moving. So I'm about to start my entrepreneurial journey. Yes, sir. Um, it's uh, coming up soon. Um, start of the year. I'm 50. I've got five kids. Um, it's terrifying I don't know how you manage it. What, what I'm, did, well, I'm impressed how well rested you look with five kids. <laughs> I have one well, and I'm like chugging coffee. <laughs> three, three of them, three of them are, are, uh, out of the house and, uh, one of them is off the payroll and the other two will, I have twins that are in their last year of university. So they'll be off the payroll soon too. So I <laughs> Good really time to launch have, a startup. I, I really only have two, but, but it was, it was a very, very difficult decision to make. Um, what advice do you have for somebody like me that's more advanced in their career? You know, it, to me, it feels like if I was 20, it's much easier to do something like that. Or is it just a mindset? 100% mindset. Um, and I'm going to going to make up some stats on the Internet, but I, I know <laughs> roughly that this is this is a thing. Um, if you look at the average founding age of uh, founders that have taken companies public, Everyone thinks it's the university dropout Zuckerberg yeah. story. I believe the last time I looked at the the actual data around this, it was kind of founders in their early to mid 40s are the most likely to take a company public. And it skews older before it skews younger. Hmm. The depth and caliber of experience makes a huge difference when launching a business. Yes, there are incredible Hollywood-esque dropout <laughs> unicorn stories. They are not the norm. Yeah. Um, and especially looking at it from an investor side of the ecosystem, the amount of 20-something founders that get funded, chase a dream with crazy ambition, which is amazing, but have no idea how to manage people, have no idea how to hire, have no idea how to structure and run culture in a company or 
any of that and end up burning through the funds and having to either shut down the company and launch something else or pivot, oftentimes the bet is better on the second or third time founding because they've kind of got the battle scars of like, oh right. yeah, no, I, I've learned sense. what yeah. didn't work. And now I'm coming at this with way more um, vision on how to execute. I think mm. it's never it's never easy to launch a company. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of um, risk associated with it. But the more experience you've got and understanding you've got going into it of where who are your customers? How do you speak your customer's language? What's the value you're bringing to the table? Like, um, from our last conversation, I think you've got the one of the best foundations for launching a company you could possibly have, and that you know your customer and client base phenomenally well. I've worked with them for yeah. a long time, are a known entity in the space, and to some extent, there's going to be kind of a sigh of relief of like, oh, amazing, we get to work with yeah. you directly. Yeah, yeah, this is cool. I, I, I hope that's <laughs> that's kind of my my that's what's in my head at least. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's. I, I figured at this point, you know, if, if I if I'm going to do it, now is the time. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, I want to I want to scale back on the amount I work. You know, I've got a baby, four month old. Um, I want to <laughs> I want to work less. Uh, yep. You know, I've been very fortunate that I got three months of paternity leave with with the job I'm in now, um, and that's actually what helped me get to this decision. So um, I love it. You know, it's but I can always get a job. Right. If it doesn't work out, you know, so be it. I'll just go get a job. So it's once I've kind of gotten over that, over that mental hurt, it, it was, it was a big step. So let me wrap up with a, with a couple of hopefully fun questions. Um, yeah. What, what, uh, what book has most influenced your career? Oh, two answers. One, oh, because I have to, one, one, one okay. for accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that has most influenced my career but I've never finished and okay. I've never read a second time was actually the success principles by Jack Canfield. Okay. And I say that because it's the book my mom gave to me yep. when I was in my first semester of university and hating everything. <laughs> and by the halfway through the book, I had dropped out and it had given me enough perspective and enough focus on creating success and happiness that I was able to very clearly see the path I was on was never going to be one I was excited about. Hmm. Um, I can't even speak to the second half of the book because I got so engrossed in everything I was doing. Everything <laughs> took off. I never really got back to it. I was like, well, that was good. Yeah. Um, and then from a mindset shift perspective, um, and I think you probably potentially share some of this is, uh, Dan Martell's buy back your time. Like oh, in all yep. honesty, it has given such a good framework for how I structure my time, how to better manage and scale up. It came at the like perfect time when I was looking for something like mm -hmm. that. I brought on an EA. It's made such a big difference and been so helpful kind of across the board in looking at how do we, how do we get from where we are today with Ibersoft and with our companies to the next level without burning out and just saying, okay, yeah, from to get from there here to there, we go from 40 hours a week to 80 hours a week. And that's, that's the solution. It's like, it's no, not sustainable. Yeah. Way yeah. better approach. I yeah. think that's hopefully the foundation for some of your journey in terms of 
there's a lot of work and a lot of time that goes into starting. But if you're using kind of buyback principles, then you don't necessarily have to drown yourself in 80 hour weeks to launch a business. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it, one, one of the great things about that book is that it does speak to people with all different levels of experience. Me, a first time, first timer, almost first timer, you been doing it forever. Uh, we yeah. still can both get a lot of value out of the same principles. And, and I was reading that book at the same time that I was on leave. And uh, I was like, I, I have to do this. You know, the book, was, it's like, it's almost like it was meant to be, you know, that I was meant to, to, to read that book at that time. You know, I actually listened to it first and then, oh, re cool. and then read it afterwards. Yeah. Cause I wanted to go through the exercises and, and all of that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So why don't, why don't we, why don't we wrap it up there? Um, I was going to okay. ask you a few more questions, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's almost been an hour, so I don't want to take up too much of your time, but thank you very much for, uh, for, uh, for this chat and what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah. Uh, I'm Graham Barlow on all social media as well as GrahamBarlow.com. If you're looking for development or curious to hear more about what we do, iversoft.ca and mm -hmm. excited to chat with anyone that wants to reach out and all things tech entrepreneurship or scale up.